We've lost sight of mere sexuality. What used to be well understood by Christians of all stripes has gotten lost in the blur and the confusion of our post-Christian culture, which is why I think the challenge we face isn't singular, it's plural, it's not one, it's many, it's many dozens of challenges in in matters of sexuality in our congregations, each of which I think is an under, is, is, it reflects or is an expression of this underlying loss of vision. Welcome to another episode of the Pastor Theologian Show. Today, we are featuring a conference message from our very own Todd Wilson. This message was delivered at our 2016 conference on human sexuality, and the title of this message is Mere Sexuality. Let's jump right in. What is mere sexuality? We'll get to that in just a minute, but It may be useful at the outset of this talk just to set out for you where I'm headed in the talk, what the argument of the talk's gonna be. And so here it is in a few sentences. Over the last several decades, we've witnessed a sea change of opinion on sexual ethics and in particular on same-sex practice and gay marriage. Not only in our culture, but also, as John's already alluded to, also among many evangelicals. For evangelicals, especially younger evangelicals, this change of opinion has been sped along, I think, by two key factors. First, a loss of functional biblical authority. And then second, a refashioning of moral intuitions. But underlying both of those factors, I believe, is an even more decisive issue. Evangelicals have experienced what I think is a profound loss of theological vision. We've lost sight of what I'm calling mere sexuality. And unless or until we recover a vision of mere sexuality... Evangelical Christianity, I believe, is going to continue to lose its grip on biblical orthodoxy, at least when it comes to sexual ethics. And so that's where I'm headed in the talk. That's my argument in a nutshell. But let me ease into it tonight by sharing a few observations and a couple of anecdotes. And the first observation, let's call it this, Tinder and the dawn of the dating apocalypse. Right? It's actually the title of a, a sobering, a startling article that appeared about a year ago in Vanity Fair. In fact, a, a friend of my wife sent it to her and said, uh, read this and then pray. This article in Vanity Fair. Do you know the app Tinder? That's a trick question. You shouldn't know the app Tinder. This is a Christian conference after all, Right? For those of you who don't know the app Tinder, right, it's like eHarmony, except it's not really about relationships, it's about sex. That's Tinder. And Nancy Jo Sales, the author of the article in Vanity Fair from about a year ago, takes us inside the sordid world of Tinder users living in the financial district of Manhattan and elsewhere, but she starts off with those in Manhattan. The article begins this way, listen to this. 
It's a balmy night in Manhattan's financial district, and at a sports bar called Stout, everyone is tindering. The tables are filled with young women and men who've been chasing money and deals on Wall Street all day, and now they're looking for hookups. Everyone's drinking, peering into their screens, and swiping on the faces of strangers they may have sex with later that evening. At a booth in the back, three handsome 20-something guys in button-downs are having beers. They're They're Dan, Alex, and Marty, budding investment bankers at the same financial firm. When asked if they've been arranging dates on the apps they've been swiping at, all say, not one date, but two or three. You can't be stuck in one lane, one of them adds. There's always something better. Alex, in fact, says that he himself has slept with five different women he met on Tinder in the last eight days. Tinderellas is what the guys call them. Dan and Marty, also Alex's roommates in a shiny high-rise apartment building near Wall Street, can vouch for that. In fact, they can remember whom Alex has slept with in the past week more readily than he can. The article goes on like this for pages of, of genuinely sobering startling stuff, and it unfolds with section headings like the following. Sex has become so easy. Hit it and quit it. Boom, 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 swipe. The morning after, and people are gorging. It's all pretty sobering and pretty sad stuff, honestly. It is a a good glimpse at a neo-pagan rather than a deeply Christian approach to human sexuality. But from Manhattan, let me take you to another epicenter of culture, or at least of Christian culture, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Some of you have already, no doubt, caught the news that one of Christianity's uh, leading public intellectuals, Nicholas Walterstorff, just came out last week in support of same-sex marriage. Not just civil marriage, but ecclesial marriage, in fact. Speaking on October 13th in an event sponsored by All One Body, he said this, among among a number of other things, of course, he said this, quote, when those with homosexual orientation uh, act on their desires in a loving, committed relationship, they are not, as far as I can see, violating the love command. Now, I was an undergrad at Wheaton, and I was a philosophy major, and it didn't take me long to, develop, to have Nicholas Walterstorff become one of my heroes. And so this is a disappointing piece of news for me, if I'm, if I'm honest, and I suspect it is for some of you as well. But from Grand Rapids, let me take you to that other mecca of Christian culture and to my alma mater, Wheaton College. I was undergrad at Wheaton in the mid-90s before the invention of the iPhone or even the regular use of email. Do you remember those days? (laughs) At that time, debate about, seriously, debate about same-sex practice at that time, and I don't think I was cloistered away at Wheaton, right? But at that time, it was, while not totally unheard of, it was almost entirely off the radar screen, just in the mid-90s. We simply didn't discuss the issue. Who then would have thought that just over a decade later, a fairly large and impressive and outspoken group of Wheaton students would assemble on the steps of Edmund Chapel 
to express their misgiving with a woman's story of conversion to Christ and renunciation of her lesbian past. Who would have ever thought that? Or an example even closer to home, my current pastoral charge here at Calvary Memorial Church in Oak Park, where I've been for a little, uh, just a little under a decade now. I've been at the church, though, long enough to witness a shift of opinion take place before my very eyes. As the church has gotten younger, so views of, of congregants have shifted as well in a more open and affirming direction. I don't want to paint my own congregation with a broad brushstroke by any means, but, but I will say I've seen this. This has been a noticeable shift in just under a decade of ministry. It's not all that surprising. This is what demographers would predict would be the case just in terms of the demographic shift, but it doesn't make it any less profound and rapid a shift in a, at times, dizzily disorienting kind of way. And so, y'all, without sounding cliche, I simply want to say, Toto, we are not in Kansas anymore. This is a different world we're living in. Over the past number of decades, we've seen a sea change of opinion in our culture on sexual ethics and within the last decade on the issue of same-sex practice and gay marriage in particular. Surely one of the most rapid and profound shifts of opinion in American history. And what I find remarkable, though, is that the evangelical church has largely kept pace with the sea change of opinion, which I think forces us to ask, what on earth is going on? Like, how can it be, right? How can it be that something so obviously problematic to those a generation ago could be so hotly contested or widely embraced now in this generation. How is that possible? Not least by Bible-believing, Chris Tomlin singing conservative evangelicals. How is that possible? What happened? The reasons for the sea change of opinion are no doubt complex. I don't want to uh, cookie-cutter or overly simplify, but let me just lay out two factors that I've already mentioned, but I think go a long way to explaining what has happened and why we find ourselves in the place we find ourselves in today. First, I think there's been a loss of functional biblical authority, not theoretical biblical authority, not the denial of biblical authority per se, but functional biblical authority, you might say at the practical level. Why is that? I think it's for this reason, primarily. The rising generation of evangelicals is coming of age, has come of age in a world of pervasive interpretive pluralism. A phrase coined by sociologist Christian Smith and very forcefully presented in his book, Bible Made Impossible, The Bible Made Impossible. And regardless of what you think about his conclusions, I think we have to come to terms with the problem he's addressing with this thing he calls pervasive interpretive pluralism. And what on earth is that? Well, it's this. Your average evangelical college student knows full well, is painfully aware, you might say, that the Bible can be used to support any number of competing views on a whole host of important topics. And so you take any passage of scripture and you're going to find a well-informed Christian who holds one view. And you're going to find a similar number of equally devout believers who hold an opposing view. 
Hey, everybody, just a reminder that our CPT conference on technology and theology is fast approaching. So if you've been thinking about coming and you haven't yet registered, uh, now is the time to do it. Uh, We'd love to have you out as we hear from Andy Crouch, Karen Swallow Pryor, Charlie Dates, and a lot of other great speakers. If you want to find out more about the conference or register, you can visit us at cptconference.com. Let's get right back into Todd Wilson's 2016 conference message, Mere Sexuality. It's not to suggest that this rising generation of evangelicals thinks that the Bible is just a wax nose that can be bent and molded in whatever way you want. I don't know any evangelical, evangelical, self-identifying evangelical who would affirm such a radical view of Scripture. But this is the point. I know plenty who think the Bible, listen, is basically underdetermined in what it teaches. At least on lots of things. Basically underdetermined. And thus they resign themselves to the idea that there simply isn't enough biblical material to make an open and shut case for much of anything, not least same sex practice. And so you see, the reality of pervasive interpretive pluralism has, I think, undercut the functional authority of the Bible in a whole generation of evangelical Christians. And so to put it very simply, Scripture no longer speaks decisively. A loss of functional biblical authority. There's a second factor, though, I think, influencing the opinion of especially younger evangelicals on in particular, the issue of same-sex practice. And it's this, the refashioning of moral intuitions. The refashioning of moral intuitions. For many, say, in my parents' generation, expressions of same-sex sexual intimacy were met with a sense of, and I want to be careful, a sense of like moral aversion or, or a kind of gut-level uh, disgust even, a sense of moral aversion or revulsion, even a sense of disgust, not because they reasoned their way to that conclusion, but because their moral intuitions had been so shaped to simply see that it was problematic. In a kind of pre-theoretical way, they're not reasoning their way to that conclusion, they simply see it that way have an intuitive gut sense that something's a little off or something's not quite right about same-sex sexual intimacy. But as I think you know, many within the right, this rising generation of evangelicals, for many within the rising generation of evangelicals, displays of same-sex sexual intimacy are not met with those same kinds of responses and reactions. Not because, again, they've reasoned their way to accepting same-sex practice, but because their moral intuitions have been fashioned or, in some cases, refashioned so that same-sex intimacy is seen to be perfectly normal or, as one of our teenage sons or daughters would say, like, mom and dad, it's no big deal. Now, the upshot, I think, of these two factors, right, the issue of pervasive interpretive pluralism undercutting functional biblical authority on the one hand, 
and the refashioning of moral intuitions, on the other hand, these two factors, I think, to, to borrow a concept from the sociologist has undermined the plausibility structure, right, of historic Christian sexual ethics. So that what for Christians, for centuries, they've always believed and practiced, nowadays, it strikes many folks as odd, if not offensive. While same-sex practice, the same-sex relationships, or other departures from historic Christian sexual ethics seem, on the other hand, normal, even laudable. But I think underneath both of those factors is an even more decisive issue. There's a profound loss of theological vision, I think. We've lost sight of mere sexuality. What used to be well understood by Christians of all stripes has gotten lost in the blur and the confusion of our post-Christian culture, which is why I think the challenge we face isn't singular, it's plural, it's not one, it's many, it's many things. Dozens of challenges in, the matters, of, in matters of sexuality in our congregations, each of which I think is an under, is, is, it reflects or is an expression of this underlying loss of vision. And so, for example, alarmingly high rates of premarital sex, cohabitation, adultery, divorce, adult wedlock births, dysfunctional sexual relations within spouses and marriages, the hookup culture on college campuses, sexual abuse, and of course, pornography. But it's also why I want to argue that if we're going to live into the fullness of the gospel, and if we're going to live with sexual wholeness as the people of God and sexual holiness, then we need to recover a vision for mere sexuality. And what is mere sexuality? You'll, of course, be familiar with that famous book by a similar sounding title, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. For Lewis, you'll know, mere Christianity is a shorthand way to refer to those basic themes that have characterized the Christian faith down through the ages. And so mere Christianity is not Baptist Christianity or Anglican Christianity or Presbyterian Christianity or Roman Catholic Christianity, but mere Christianity. It's the convictions they share in common. In other words, it's what virtually all Christians everywhere have always believed. And so by using this phrase, mere sexuality, I have something similar in mind. I use it as shorthand, as a shorthand way to refer to the themes that have characterized this Christian vision of sexuality down through the ages. And so by calling it mere sexuality, I'm saying this is what most Christians at most times in most places have believed about, about human sexuality. It's an argument that there is a kind of historic consensus, Christian consensus about sexuality that's been part of the church in all of its major expressions, Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant. It's been around for centuries, from roughly the 4th to the middle of the 20th century, and only seriously called into question within the church in the last 40 to 50 years with the liberalization of Christian sexual ethics and the foment of the 1960s sexual revolution really just in the last 40 or 50 years. Of course, it's not, I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that there's been complete unanimity on every issue of sexuality in the Christian tradition. By no means am I trying to say that. 
Think of Gregory of Nyssa, the 4th century Cappadocian father, who believed that human beings would reproduce asexually in heaven. Or Thomas Aquinas, who strongly disagreed with that. And yet Aquinas was of the opinion, following his esteemed master Aristotle, that women were, quote, misbegotten males. A dubious view, the the Christian tradition is rightly and roundly rejected. Or think of Augustine, Bishop of Hippo and author of the Confessions and City of God, who doubted whether sexual desire could ever, ever really rise above the level of lust. Luther, thankfully, begged to differ, as did Calvin and those who followed in their wake. But think about the massive study on human sexuality by Pope John Paul II where he offers some specific proposals about femininity and, and feminine values that, say, the famed Swiss theologian Karl Barth would have found deeply problematic on methodological and Christological grounds. What I'm saying is there's real diversity and even divergence within the Christian tradition. I don't want to deny that or paper over that in the least. And yet, despite these diversities and some of these divergences, this consensus I'm calling mere sexuality, it has been surprisingly steady and robust down through the centuries. So much so that you can identify its basic contours. You can see it in the history of the church. And what are those contours? It include a bunch of, of interrelated beliefs and convictions, biblical and scriptural and theological, but this is the heart of it, I think, the heart of mere sexuality. And so the heart of the church's teaching on human sexuality. It's the belief that sexual difference, being male or female, is both theologically and morally significant, that it matters to God, and so it ought to matter to us as well. On the first page of the Bible, we read this, that male and female, God created them, Genesis 1.27. And then immediately we're confronted with that text, with both the canonical and the theological priority of sexual difference in Christian thinking. Sexual difference is essential to who we are. It's not accidental, it's not peripheral, it's not flexible, it's not negotiable. Sexual difference is part of our nature as creatures. It's not something we create like iPhones or automobiles. God rather has woven sexual difference into the very fabric of creation. And so because of this, our being male and female is integral to our calling as image bearers. Not least, I think we want to say, in that most basic of all human communities, the one we know as marriage. As a result, I don't think we can ignore or minimize the fact of our being either male or female without undermining our ability to flourish and our ability to find human fulfillment. And, y'all, since our sexual difference is core to who we are, it's not going to be eradicated at the, at the resurrection. Rather, it's going to persist for all eternity, though in a glorified expression. My resurrection body and your resurrection body will be sexed bodies. Just as Jesus' risen body is a sexed body. 
Check it out. Jesus is and always will be a crucified, circumcised Jewish male forever. Forever. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to tune in next week for part two. Thank you for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider throwing us a like, sharing the podcast online, subscribing, leaving a review. Uh, Anything like that would go a long way towards helping other people hear about the podcast. Uh, The CPT Podcast is a ministry of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our host for today's episode was Todd Wilson. Our producer and editor was Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.